And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. On that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, indeed we pray that we would have ears to hear, that as the sower comes to sow the seed of his word in our hearts, that it would take root, that it would find fertile soil, and that it would produce fruit. So Father, we pray that you would deliver us from every distraction, deliver us from every error today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Back when I used to get a daily newspaper, I enjoyed the morning ritual of opening the paper, of holding the printed page in my hand. There was something tangible and, and uh, concrete about holding information. Back when you kind of still trusted that most of it was kind of reliable and, you know, some, some, some approximation of the truth. But I always turn first to the sports section of the paper first during baseball season, check out the, the box scores, that's where I'd go first. And then the second place I would always go is to the political cartoons, to the op-ed page. The city I grew up in had a full page every day of political cartoons. And in order to understand political cartoons, you must be familiar with a certain set of symbols and conventions that these cartoonists use, or else you're wondering why that donkey is talking to that elephant about Iran. It doesn't make sense unless you know what the donkey represents, you know what the elephant represents. Political cartoons have a rich history in America, dating all the way back to the colonial times. One of the earliest and most well-known was drawn by uh, Benjamin Franklin himself. It was a woodcut of a timber rattlesnake cut into 13 pieces, and beneath that image was the caption, join or die. Now, you've probably seen that in a textbook at some point. Now, we might get the point of the caption, join or die, understanding the context of the American fight for independence, but in order to understand the full impact of that cartoon, you have to understand that the 13 pieces of the snake represent the 13 colonies, that's fairly easy, but you also have to have the background of the image uh, that, that the timber rattlesnake had become a political symbol for the colonies. The way that we look at a bald eagle today is a symbol of our people, a symbol of our, our nation. The rattlesnake was the symbol of the colonies. That snake was emblazoned on buttons and coins and on stamps and military insignia, the covers of pamphlets and books. It shows up famously on the Gadsden flag. You've seen that, the, the yellow flag with the coiled snake and the caption, don't tread on me. It's because this was the symbol of the colonies. This is how they saw themselves. It's a fitting symbol because not only are rattlesnakes indigenous to North America, but uh, 
rattlesnakes typically don't mess with you unless you mess with them, and then you're sorry that you did. You're sorry that you messed with them. And so the snake was a warning to Britain, mess with us and find out what kind of strength and, and venom we have. Uh, mess with us and you'll be sorry that, that you did. It's kind of sad, actually, that we don't have a snake on our flag anymore, isn't it? I mean, that's, that would be kind of neat. If, and words, why don't we have words on flags and, and do that anymore? Um, but, but with all this in the background, Franklin's cartoon makes a lot more sense. It means that snake, the symbol of the coiled strength, the, the fighting spirit of the colonies, that snake is powerless unless it has all of its parts working together. It cannot strike back if it has 13 individual pieces cut up. And so cartoons like this really rely on us having a common understanding of what these symbols mean. Now, when Jesus worked and healed and taught, Jesus was a fountain of symbolism. At key moments in his ministry, he is reenacting important events of Israel's history, except that now, he goes through these stories as the faithful son. He is the obedient son, well-pleasing to the father. His work echoes Moses and David and the prophets before him. And in order to get the full impact of Jesus's ministry, you can't go into the gospels cold. If you just start reading the gospels, you'll pick up things, you'll hear things, you'll learn things. But to understand the full background of what Jesus is doing, you have to be well-read in the Hebrew scriptures. And so when Jesus teaches, he uses parables that are full of pictures that are common and which could be interpreted with a little bit of patience, but at the same time, pictures and symbols that are just oblique enough that the casual listener would, would just miss the point. And the critic who's looking for something to accuse Jesus of, well, they are just gonna be frustrated. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus's popularity has been increasing to a level that has made everyone around him nervous. His family is fearful of where all of this is taking him, where all of this is headed, and they attempt to get him and to uh, try to talk some sense in him. Come home, let us, let us keep you at home. You're headed for disaster. And no matter how far Jesus retreats with his apostles, the crowds follow, and they're coming from further and further distances away to see him and to hear him and to be healed by him. At the same time, the Pharisees are actively plotting against Jesus. They are looking for an opportunity to destroy him, and they're conspiring to turn the crowds against him this whole time. So uh, we've seen some ridiculous accusations that they've made so far, that he's a Sabbath breaker, that he breaks the traditions of the Jews, that he's not a good Jewish boy, that he is even casting out demons by the power of Satan, the most over-the-top ridiculous charge that they could make. The opposition is mounting, and by this point in his ministry, there are a lot of people hanging around when he teaches, a lot of people with a lot of different agendas. Not everybody is there in good faith. Not everybody is there to be healed or to hear him teach. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on out in the crowd, and yet Jesus still must teach his disciples, and so parables are how he chooses to do this at, his, at this stage of his ministry. We've all heard that parables are these homely little agricultural illustrations for simple farm people. 
It's a way of kind of dumbing things down um, and telling stories. But that's not how the gospels treat the parables. That's not how the disciples understand the parables. And by the way, not everybody in his audience is a farmer. There are fishermen, there are tax collectors, there are soldiers, there are publicans, there are scribes, uh, there are, are city people uh, whenever Jesus talks and whenever he teaches. Now, everyone understands the basics of what makes a plant grow, just like we do, but the point is, is that Jesus is not telling these stories to make things easier to understand necessarily. In fact, he says that what he's doing is the opposite of that. He tells parables to purposely obscure some things from some people. If you're following along, I'm going to pick up right where I left off in the uh, reading just a minute ago in uh, verse 10 of Matthew 13. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he, he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And we might be taken aback by that. We think, well, well, didn't Jesus want everybody to understand what he was saying? Well, yes and no. Some of the things Jesus was saying would be like a match in a powder keg in that first century social and political environment. Um, he's speaking in parables to buy some time. Now, eventually, the chief priests and the Pharisees are gonna catch on to this. In just a few chapters, around Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is gonna tell that parable about the, the master of the vineyard with wicked tenants, and he sends his servants to take care of the vineyard, and the wicked tenants keep killing his servants, and eventually, the master sends his own son, and they kill his son. And when Jesus tells that parable, a light bulb goes off for the uh, chief priest, and they say, oh, he's talking about us. And, and all of a sudden, wait, are we the bad guy in all of his parables? And then all of a sudden, yeah, and that, that uh, increases the intensity and, and prepares them for the final confrontation. That sets things in motion. Eventually, they get it. Eventually, they latch on to what he's saying. But for a while, for a time, He's able to speak in parables as a coded way of teaching his disciples who have ears. Just a couple chapters ago, he prayed to his father. He said, I praise you, Father, for you have hidden these truths from the wise and the prudent of this world, but you have revealed them to babes. So, so first of all, this is a, a, a shielded or veiled way of teaching Another function of parables is that they're a sign of judgment. Jesus will quote right here, he'll quote Isaiah 6. Yahweh is commissioning the prophet Isaiah to go speak in parables, go speak in dark sayings, because the people are not going to understand, and their lack of understanding is their condemnation. The fact that they don't hear Isaiah proves that they're under judgment. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah in verse 14. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. When God speaks, 
whether in Jesus' time or in Isaiah's time or any other time, when God speaks and the people can't understand or they won't understand because of their hardness of heart, it's an indication that judgment is upon them. They are under judgment. Parables point to an imminent judgment. Back in Numbers 21, 22, Balaam speaks parables, and these parables are judgment against the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Kenites. The lights are about to go out for those tribes because Balaam has spoken in parables, and that's, that's the sign of their judgment. Job, in his final discourse to his unhelpful friends, Job's final discourse is full of parables, and he calls on God to judge his enemies and to vindicate him, and then God shows up in a whirlwind. Nathan, remember Nathan, the prophet who comes to David when David is caught in sin and, and David is not repentant? And then, and then Nathan tells him that parable about the, the little lamb that was a man's pet and that um, this, this uh, tyrant took and killed the lamb. And that, that parable that Nathan tells initially arouses David's anger because David doesn't know that it's about him. He, David doesn't have ears to hear. He's being hard-hearted and he's being deaf. Why? Because he's wrapped up in sin. The parable concealed the truth from David until David's heart is humbled. And his heart is humbled when Nathan says, you are the man. And then that breaks his heart and he's humbled and that's when he repents. But the parable of Nathan heralded God's judgment against David. And you could go on to look at the parables of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah. They all speak parables about the coming judgment of God against a stubborn people. That's why the, the disciples ask here, the disciples ask, why are you speaking to them in parables? They know that parables are for people who are under judgment. And we don't understand. Why are you doing this to Israel? You're supposed to be parables to the Romans and speak parables to the Greeks, but not to your people. And that's just the point, is that this generation is under judgment. And the, and the time that, that, that is coming, the time of judgment is coming, means that Israel is not going to be anymore. They're, they're not simply going into exile this time. Uh, they're not coming back. That, that They're going to be wiped off the earth. They're going to be destroyed. The nation, the city, the temple, they're no longer going to be a people, and there's no coming back this time. And the parables of Jesus herald this reality. Now, thinking just a little bit more about this, how, how unbelief makes you deaf, how hard-heartedness makes you hard of hearing, we tend to assume that unbelief is just a matter of someone not having things explained to them clearly enough. We think they don't believe because it hasn't been explained in a way that they can understand it and that people don't understand our message because we're bad communicators. And what we need to figure out how to do is explain again and again and again and just get more creative in our explanation. But that's not what Jesus does here, is it? The unbelief that Jesus is confronted with is, is not a result of his lack of clarity. Jesus has been abundantly clear. The problem is not in the transmitter. The problem is not in the signal. The problem is in the receiver. The problem is the hardness of their hearts, which he's illustrating in this parable that we're about to unpack, that we're about to get to, the parable of the soil and the sowers. And, and, and the parables 
expose that hardness of heart. That's the point of the parables. When the prophet speaks in parables, you know that this separation is being made. Those who have ears to hear, hear and rejoice and receive the word. But the wicked and the hard-hearted are exposed in their unbelief. And you know that their judgment is coming. So, so Jesus actually commends those. He blesses those who are actually listening to him right now. In verse 16, he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So there's a clear antithesis being drawn, a clear separation. There are those who hear and those who don't. And I know you've experienced this. I know you've hit the wall in trying to explain something to someone who's unbelieving, who's hard-hearted. You have preached the gospel to them, you have called them to repentance, and they're not listening, and they're not having any of it. And the problem there is not a lack of information. The problem there is that the gospel is not glorious enough. The, the problem there is that uh, the Savior is not uh, gracious enough or loving enough or that his sacrifice is not sufficient enough. That's not the problem. What is the problem when you hit a brick wall? Often the problem is sin and unbelief in the person that you are trying to reach. And they will not let go of their sin they will not humble themselves to receive the word because that is just so difficult, just so painful. They're that in love with their idolatry and sin. Now, you and I can always work at being better communicators. I'm not saying that at all. You and I could always work at being um, uh, better articulators of the gospel, absolutely. But you understand that you will hit a brick wall with people. You're not getting anywhere, not because the gospel's not clear enough, it's because of their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And that's what Jesus is up against right here, and that's why he's speaking in parables. So parables are a coded way of teaching. They're a sign of imminent judgment. And then thirdly, another function of Jesus' parables is that they're, they're a way that Jesus casts the vision of how things work in his kingdom. Jesus is kingdom-building with his parables. So many of the parables have to do with the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, this is the way things work in my kingdom, in the world that I'm building, the new creation that I'm ushering in, this is how things are going to work. And so that's why his parables often start with something, the kingdom of heaven is like a tree. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, three measures of meal, which a woman took and hid until it was all leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, you'll see this over and over and over, because um, the, 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 these parables are kingly, they have to do with kingdom work. They're an articulation of kingly wisdom, which reminds us of another parabolic teacher, King Solomon. King Solomon spoke in parables. And if we follow the progression of Jesus' ministry throughout Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus standing in as all of the great teachers of Israel's history. Way back with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is a new Moses delivering a new law at Mount Sinai re-articulating God's law and showing what faithfulness to God's law looks like, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And then right after that, Jesus is like a new Joshua. He commissions the 12 apostles and he sends them out to conquer the land and he commissions them to do that like Joshua. And now in this section, Jesus is a new Solomon speaking parables, speaking kingly wisdom. He's speaking in ways that 
You need to listen and absorb and walk around with this stuff in your head and to grow in wisdom. And then right after this, he's gonna be a greater Elisha. He's got a school of prophets, just like Elisha does, who he sends out to do his work. And then finally, at the end of Matthew, at the end of his teaching, his last big discourse, Jesus is like a new Jeremiah. He's like a new Ezekiel, heralding the end of the city and the end of the temple, just like Jeremiah and Ezekiel did, warning of coming judgment. So parables are code, parables are judgment, parables are kingly wisdom that we internalize and meditate on and consider and walk around with. Like Solomon's parables, I'm sorry, yeah, Solomon's Proverbs, Proverbs don't say thou shalt do this. Proverbs are, are uh, an articulation of this is how the wor world works. Proverbs are an articulation of how the kingdom works. And, and so the parables of Jesus do this, do the same thing. So what is Jesus communicating with this parable, the parable of the sower and the seeds? We're heading into a long section of parables. We're just gonna read the first one today. And this parable of the sower and the seeds. What do we understand that Jesus is saying here? Well, first, anytime we see a garden, anytime we see planting, because we are steeped in biblical symbolism, we think back to the first gardener, Adam, that gardener who failed to tend to his patch of land. He failed to extend the garden out beyond the sanctuary of Eden. Now this gardener in this parable comes scattering seed. This is a garden that's, that's laid unattended for a while. This, 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 this garden is fallow. And it's been this way for a long time. The ground is stony, it's got thorns, it's not been kept up. Um, Mark, I love Mark's gospel because he has a way of, of packing so much into just a few words. In Mark's gospel, after Jesus is baptized, the spirit drives him out to the wilderness and he's out there with the wild beasts. Now why, Jesus is in the promised land, right? Jesus is in the land God gave to Israel and it's a wilderness and there are wild beasts. The land hasn't been kept up. It's supposed to be the good land. This is supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey. This is supposed to be fertile land. This is supposed to be garden land. But what do we find when Jesus comes? It is a wilderness and it's got wild beasts. It's got animals that'll tear you apart. Why is it in such bad shape? Well, because the first Adam failed to dress and keep the garden and he didn't run off the wild beasts. In fact, he submitted to the wild beasts. He submitted to the serpent. And the generations that followed have failed to faithfully cultivate the garden. So by the time the second Adam comes, everything's a ruin. Everything's in bad shape. It needs a better gardener. And the physical condition of the land reflects the spiritual condition of the people. So the soils in this parable are our people. We're made from the ground, we're made from the dirt, we're made from the dust of the earth, and so we identify with the dirt. And some of us are thorny dirt, and some of us are shallow dirt, and some of us are rocky dirt, and some of us are fertile dirt, um, and some of us are productive dirt, and some of us are just dirt, some of us are just dirt bags. So we just, that's, what, that's what we are. And, and so we identify with the soils, because we're made of the soil. So now this gardener comes to restore the garden and he scatters his seed liberally. He's throwing it everywhere. He doesn't have just one little envelope of seeds that he got from the garden department at Walmart. You know, just one little, one little packet of seeds that he tenderly puts into the most well-watered, 
boast fertilized, uh, richest soil. He sprinkles the miracle grow on it and he just tends to that little thing. No, he's got so much seed that he scatters it everywhere. He's got lots of it so that it's no waste to throw it everywhere. He's demonstrating how plentiful the seed is. It never runs out. And he's happy to see fruit from whatever part of the land will grab it and grow it. He, he, there, there's no lack in the sower. There's no deficiency in the sower. The only deficiency is in the various soils. By using seeds and trees, as he's going to do over the next several parables, by using these agricultural images, Jesus is showing how the kingdom comes in. The kingdom doesn't come with a big explosion. The kingdom doesn't come overnight. The kingdom is going to grow like a field. You sow the seed, some of it's going to take, some of it isn't. You put in the work, you water, you weed, you fertilize. And after patience and time, little green buds pop up from the soil. But just like you get different results when you plant, there are going to be different responses to the coming of the kingdom. And even those who respond to the gospel gladly are going to produce different levels of productivity, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, and there's going to be different levels of fruitfulness. So uh, the disciples ask Jesus when they get him aside, they say, could you explain what this parable is all about? And so he does. He unpacks and explains his own parable, beginning with verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understand it, uh, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So I think we got it. The seed is the word, the sower is the Lord, and we are the soil. There are four different soils in the parable, and there's a progression of receptivity to the seed of the word. The first seed, the first soil, it never takes root because the birds come and snatch away the seed. The second one starts, but it's on shallow soil, and so it starts, it springs up, but then it dies under the heat of the sun. The third survives as a green plant, but then it gets choked before it becomes fruitful, before it bears any fruit. It gets choked by thorns, and then the fourth bears much fruit. I've previously thought that Jesus was speaking about three different kinds of unregenerate hearts, hearts that will never believe, and then one regenerate heart. And so you're either absolutely one of these for all time, uh, one kind of soil or another, and we can pretty accurately tell which one you are. But I'm not so sure that that's a, that's a complete accurate reading. I think at the end of your life, you can look back and see, you know, was I, was I receptive or was I stony-hearted throughout my entire life? But when Jesus... Uh, speaks this parable, on the day that he says this, and you look around at the apostles, you would put all of them in the category of the good soil. They're hearing, they're obeying, they're, they're doing what Jesus says, they're following him. But in a short while, when Jesus is arrested and when he's crucified, 
they all stumble. Jesus tells them, you're all going to stumble, and they do. They have the word snatched away. They don't, they don't remember what Jesus said about his resurrection, even on the morning of the resurrection. They just can't put it all together because the word is snatched away. They wilt under persecution and tribulation. And for Judas, especially, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the progress of the word. Only at the end of their lives could you look back, after they go through all of this, could you look back and really get a whole picture of their receptivity and their fruitfulness, whether they were the good soil. So it seems better to understand this parable as a warning for all of us to hear, not just one time, but to, but to continue to hear and to receive the word, that every time you're exposed to the word of God, every time the word can be snatched away. Every time you're exposed to God's word, you are either stony or shallow or thorny or your fertile soil for the seed to be implanted in your hearts and grow and bear fruit. So let's take a moment to look at each patch of dirt quickly. In the first example, the seed is scattered and it hits the wayside, it hits the sidewalk, it hits the hard-packed pathway, and before it can take root, birds come and devour it. So the word is read, the word is proclaimed, the word is preached, the word is quoted, and immediately before it can settle in and start to grow, it's stolen away. When Jesus explains this part of the parable, he says the wicked one comes and snatches it. Why does the wicked one want to come and distract you, to snatch away the word? Why does Satan want to tempt you to ignore God's word? Well, because the word of God is the word of life. God's word accurately informs all of reality. It is the only reliable source of truth that we have. By the word, we have a reality defined for us. It is our, 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 our wisdom and instruction in life. It's, it's how to think and how to be whole as the men and women God created us to be. There is indescribable comfort and blessing and rest in having your life and having your mind shaped by biblical truth and wisdom. And so Satan is actively at work to steal that away. Why is it so hard to pay attention when the Bible is being read or taught or preached or proclaimed? Why is it so hard to pay attention? Why is it so easy to daydream and let your mind wander? Why are you so easily distracted? when the word is being read by the elder or when I'm reading the word or, or teaching it? And, and why do you not care so much about distracting other people either? Why, why aren't we more self-aware about how our behavior interrupts other people around us and distracts them from hearing and receiving the word? Um, why, why, uh, why is it so easy? Why is it, you just see, every Lord's Day, when the elder stands before and he reads big chunks of scripture, there is always, it just without fail, there's always some crazy distraction. There's a, you know, somebody drives down this road with a, without a muffler and just, and just blows us all out of our seats. Or there's, you know, somebody knocks over a, 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 one of those metal tumblers and, and it just crashes. Or, or some crazy thing happens every single time. Every single, you can count on it. I set my watch by it. Every Lord's Day, I know something crazy is going to happen. Why? Is that by design or is it just an accident? You know, I'm not... 
I'm not a, you know, a crazy charismatic that sees a, a devil or a demon under every bush and under every table, but I do believe that Satan does not want you paying attention to me or to the elder or to the reading of God's word. I know that for a fact. He does not want you paying attention. Why is it so hard? Why do we make excuses for not faithfully hearing and studying God's word for ourselves in an organized way? Why, when you try to read the Bible or listen to the Bible, why do you focus um, and, and you try to focus and, and, and your mind is so easily drawn off course? Why do you zone out? We don't have that problem in all other areas. You can follow a really complicated movie and watch it without, without getting drawn off. You can watch the whole thing for an hour and a half, two hours. You can watch a TV series with 100 complex characters and you know all of how they're all related to each other and what all they're doing. You can focus on complex problems at work or you can pay intensely to the video game that you're playing and you just shut the whole world out when you're, when you're playing that video game. But it is so difficult to pay attention and listen to when the word is being read and taught. Well, why is that? It's because the evil one, the wicked one, wants to snatch it away. You have an opponent. You have an opponent here that you don't have in other, in other places. And the reality is, when something is important to you, you listen. When you care, you listen. You, you focus. You, you, if you don't care, it's really easy to have it snatched away. And so we all have to be on guard. We all have to be vigilant and, and diligent. The second soil sees the seed land on shallow, rocky ground. There's a thin layer of dirt over, over stone. And the plant springs up quickly. But as soon as the sun shines, because the plant has no root, it withers. Just like those who receive the word gladly but who can't endure any trouble. The, the soil is shallow, just like their understanding is shallow. Their faith is shallow. And when bad things happen, they can't reconcile their very shallow understanding of the faith, their very shallow understanding of the gospel. They can't reconcile that with their circumstances. The shallowness of the soil is the reason they spring up so quickly. All the energy of the plant went up and not down because there's nowhere for the roots to grow. So the energy of the plant grows up. But as soon as they flame up, they flame out. We've known, you've known new converts whose initial growth seems to be all positive, but it, it's all just fueled by this kind of emotion and excitement of making a change. But if that isn't soon buttressed by a deep-rooted maturity, that raw emotion turns from euphoria quickly to fear and anxiety and terror when persecution comes, and they just can't endure. They can't keep it up. And, and this is a warning to us all, not just for new converts. The pressure is on you. The pressure is on all of us to conform to the lies of the world. It's on all the time, and it's only increasing. The pressure is on you and on your children to conform to the immorality of the world, to accept as normal every wickedness and perversion and sickness and idolatry and blasphemy and just to go along and just to say, yep, that's normal, that's good, that's love, that's unity, that's harmony, that's just, that's just fine. You know, it's 2023, that's the way things are done now. And you just, that's, that's the temptation, that's the draw, that's the pressure. 
more and more people are having to make decisions on whether, whether they can keep their job and whether, whether keeping their job means that they're complicit in the ever-increasing nonsense or, or whether maybe in this evil corporation I can just find a seam, I can just find a cleft, just a place to work and keep my nose clean and keep my head down and do my job or, or is it time to just go do something else? Is it time to just leave and quit and find something else? This society is ever increasingly, it's not just unfriendly to you and to your children. It's not just unfriendly to the church. The society is hostile to the church. They, they hate you. They hate you and they hate your children and they hate your marriages and they, they hate your happiness and they hate that you're just so normal and they hate, that you, they hate everything about you. And, and the, the pressure to conform to wickedness and perversion is intense and intensifying. And if the, if the word of God has not taken root in you, then when that tribulation or persecution comes, and it will come, then you won't stand. And that's depicted by the second uh, soil where, the, where the, there's, there's no root. And so the plant burns up in the sun. The third, the third seed, um, the third soil has the seed grow among thorns. The seed of the word is received. It produces a plant, but the plant never bears fruit because the plant is choked by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Simply put, when there are things that are more important to you than pleasing God, the word is choked and becomes unfruitful. We have seen over the last uh, handful of years, we've had and have experienced, and we've kind of enjoyed this spirit of resistance, a little, a little healthy feistiness to being a faithful Christian over the last few years, because we've had, some of us for the first time in our lives, we've had some tangible resistance against worshiping and tangible resistance against just living normal lives, and we've pushed back, and we've uh, not budged. But now, as things return to normal, and, and things have, have, have been kind of normal again for a while, it's so easy for us to drift back into the laziness that defined our lives before, that kind of, that, that just stop doing the things that have brought you life and blessing. And we forget, we kind of get lulled into complacency that, that makes us forget that, no, we are really still in the midst of a real conflict. And, and, and we allow this the, the passing temporary superficial cares of this word, world to choke out the word that, that is in us and to choke out the fruit of the word. I, I get it. Some of us just thrive with opposition. Some of us just thrive with a little, you know, cussed determination and resilience. I, I, I get it. But when that opposition relaxes a little bit, or rather that opposition is redirected in a different way, that doesn't mean we go back to living carelessly. That means we intensify. We do the things that we know uh, feed our faith and grow us in understanding and grow us in maturity even, even more, lest we let the cares of this world choke the word like this third soil. The fourth is the good soil, which yields a good crop, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. Even among those who receive the word and who bear fruit, there are different levels of productivity. 
there are some faithful saints who absolutely amaze us with what they're able to accomplish. They have the same 24 hours a day that we do, and yet God has just blessed them with so many gifts, and it seems that they, they do things that just multiply benefit and blessing wherever they go and whatever they do. It's just how much they're able to get done and how many lives they're able to impact. It's so visible and public, and God is blessing them, and God is blessing us through them. And then some others of us, I mean, we're just doing our best to get through the day. We're just doing our best to do our job and be faithful with what God has put right in front of us. But here's, here's the blessing and here's the good news is that no one knows the yield of the crop until the harvest. Nobody gets to see what that is until the end. And, and, and I trust that there are some quiet, persevering saints who have never been to the mission field, who have never preached a sermon, who have never wrote a book, but who pray fervently, who have the Psalms on their lips, who have God's word hidden in their hearts, who have saints who have a tenacious love for the Savior and a love for the church, for the people of God, who do everything they do to the glory of God, they are going to be among the 60-fold and the 100-fold at the harvest. Uh, the, the word has grown deep in them, and they abound with good fruit. So this parable comes as a warning and an encouragement to all of us the stony-hearted and the shallow and the thorny and the easily distracted people aren't out there. Don't read that and say, oh yeah, that's somebody else. That's somebody who's never heard, never paid attention. No, the, the, the stony and the easily distracted and the shallow and the thorny are in here. And so when you hear the word, don't be hard-headed. Don't be, don't be blind. Don't, don't be deaf, listen and hold fast and apply yourself to listening when you are exposed to the word. Exercise your mind and discipline your body in being a faithful hearer of the word. Focus your mind, don't be distracted. Make every effort to not be a distraction. Be grounded, be deeply established. Don't be satisfied with a superficial understanding of the word. Get it deep in you so that when persecution comes, and it will come, that when suffering comes, and it will come, that you will be steady and solid and faithful. Don't get lazy and become more concerned about the cares of this world than you are about your development, your development and your maturity as a disciple of Jesus. Remember the last thing that Jesus said. He said, he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces. Why do we preach and teach the word? Why do we spend this time every Lord's day? Why do we get together at other times to read and study God's word? Why do we encourage you to read it for yourself and read it to your children so that you can do exactly what Jesus says here? So you can hear it and so you can understand it and so that you can bear fruit, so that you can bear fruit, bear the fruit of a, of a healthy marriage, the fruit of, a, of a strong, stable children in your home, to bear the fruit of good work that transforms the world so that you can live the gospel in a way that others see and hear the good news. That's the fruit that Jesus is looking for. Let's give thanks and pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who has, who has sown his word 
in our hearts. Grant that it would take root in us, that we would be fertile soil for your word, that it would transform us and bear much fruit. This is our desire and our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.